Hi all, and welcome back to the Black and Empowered podcast. I'm Dominique, and I am the show's production supervisor. Today, we bring you a special episode with Maya Metzer of Psych Mike, as she interviews our very own Dr. Aisha Metzger. We start the episode with laughter. Come and join us in a wonderful conversation between two great colleagues. This episode is especially helpful for students who are considering going deeper into academic pursuits around psychology and or getting into clinical practice. To learn more about the Psych Mike podcast, check out their link and all of our links in the show notes. (laughs) We're starting this interview in laughter because... (laughs) Aisha just told me that the way she starts her podcast episodes is by the Song Association Challenge. Yes, which, very bad singing. Can you explain what it is? If I explain it, you're going to do it. The Song Association Challenge is when <laughs> I would say a word and you would sing the first song that comes to your mind that has that word in the lyrics or the title. And oh then you would God. give me a different word and I would have to on the spot think of a song and do the same thing but it only lasts 10 seconds of pressure so if you don't think of a word in 10 seconds then it's just over it's over yeah oh, and, and my what happens then is i'll just say oh this is a song that i had in mind right or i'll say i i didn't know i couldn't think of a song either but okay uh, i might uh, let's do this like i want to let <laughs> i'm gonna try to challenge myself this is extremely scary for me i cannot I sing uh, even though when I was little, I thought I could, and then I quickly yeah. found out that I can't. So, <laughs> listen, I I'm the A for efforts. So let me take pressure off for you because I truly cannot sing. You think of a random word. Okay. I will show you how bad this gets, okay. and then you can go. Oh goodness! Oh my god! This is <laughs> this is crazy. All right. Uh, simmer. Simmer. Sorry, that was hard. That was difficult. Do you have a song in mind? Hold on. No, I don't. I don't know. I just thought of that word. Come on. Okay, that's really hard. I'm sorry. Wait, let me think of a song and then I'll think of a word. Because I, I was going to say, what I do is I usually try to like. You think of a song first. And we. I was going to say summer, summer, summertime. But that's summer. You said simmer. Simmer, like, yeah. Simmer down. Simmer yeah, like simmer down. Because I, I was simmering I say, something. Sim, simmer. Who got the keys to my bimma? <laughs> but not really simmer. But I would, I would argue. That is simmer. I would argue for that point. And I'm gonna take my point. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna be easier on you. Your word, and I always oh, start with this word because it's my favorite word in the world. This is so easy. Look at okay. you. <laughs> you guys I'm so you, scared. You can, I wish you could feel so my scared. heart rate. <laughs> <laughs> okay, easiest word in the world. Let's just get it over with. Sing a song with the word love in the song in the title or the lyrics. My first, the first song that came to mind, I don't know why, is Elvis Presley's I Can't Help, I Can't Help Falling in Love with You. There it is. I can't help falling in love with you. (laughs) (laughs) That was was so good. I was just, I was thinking I sing Beyonce or Music Soul Child. So I love it. Elvis Presley. Why was that the first song? I wonder. That's so interesting. Why was that the first? Right? It's probably because it, I associate it probably with my boyfriend. See, and now oh, you have man. good feelings. Now I have you good feelings. Good. Oh, this is great. Maybe I'll do this from now on. Please do it. Isn't it cute? Yes. <laughs> Super cute. Okay. Wow. So 
I am, I've been really excited to interview you for a while. And just to give you, give the audience some backstory, I have a friend who uh, is pursuing her PsyD in school psychology at St. John's. And she uh, recently reached out to me saying that you gave a talk there and she was like super excited by your presentation and thought it was amazing. And she was like, you should totally reach out to her and interview her for your podcast. So I looked you up and I was like, you do so much, <laughs> but, and you're real too. Like I was listening to your podcast and then we talked and I, I just couldn't, like, I, I was so excited to interview you because I knew um, you would tell it how it is on this podcast, which is uh, what I strive for. So uh, thank you for being here. I'm very excited to get to thank know you, you better. Right. Thank you for hyping me up. I'm very humbled. I'm very happy to be here. I don't know that this will be useful, but it certainly will be real. So I will give you guys all of me in that regard. I and love it. It is helpful for those of you who are figuring out what your next steps are in academia or in your career pursuits and just thinking about how to best use your skills and your talent to service your community. So mm, I love thank it. you, truly. I'm humbled and excited to be here. Yay. So I, I guess my first question is, when did you realize you wanted to devote your career to healing black babies and hugging black babies? Yeah. When I would say, well, the hugging part and healing part. Okay. That was day one. Day one. Um, that was very early on in my development. So I was raised back then to know that I was either going to be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. I had three choices. Mm -hmm. um, so back then I was going to be a pediatrician. I was going to hug babies, but give them shots when they weren't looking right. And that would help them. Um, going through kind of fundraising and talking to my cousins and community members from um, Sierra Leone, but we were here in Georgia and just thinking about the transition and, and realizing, I would say middle school, even I didn't have a word for it yet, but I was giving teddy bears and hugging, physically hugging mm. <laughs> members of my community. <laughs> and I always remember um, kind of seeking out that face in the crowd that looked like it needed a friend and wanting to, you know, sit and give that teddy bear and maybe not having the vocabulary at that age, but really wanting to hear their stories. Um, and I think- as What I went, age are we talking? I, this is middle school. This is like, I was the strangest child. Uh, this is- <laughs> this That's is, not strange. That's beautiful. You're not, oh, well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Meanwhile, my cousins are like, are you going to cry? What? And I'm like, yes, I'm going to cry. This is so touchy, right? And they're just wanting to run outside and play. And I'm like, you lonely child come let's talk let's hug let's bond so very early on mm. uh, I read a book called the Ch a child called it in middle school again I was an accelerated reader and this book was about a foster kid who was abused mm. um, in high school I took AP psych it was one of many AP classes that I took just trying to figure out what my next step mm -hmm. was I was also taking biology and realizing this isn't for me, uh, but psychology and how the mind works and how to heal from trauma. So thinking mm -hmm. about the civil war back home as a traumatic experience, even coming to America and being refugees, um, hmm. reading about were you, this. Were you born in Sierra Leone? I was born in College Park, Georgia. Okay. 
Um, I went back home to Sierra Leone at a very young age. Um, both of my parents were born there. So very early on, they knew that that was the, the environment that they wanted to bring me up in. Um, but the Civil War mm-hmm. uh, took place and prevented me from being able to stay there as well as like some, I won't say traumatic, but some health complications. Mm-hmm. Um, they thought I got malaria. Turns out I have sickle cell and I can't get malaria. So still oh, don't wow. quite know what's going on. Um, But right, so all of the stress of that time, um, and as well as right, even when I, even when we were here, hearing my family members stories, um, doing the fundraisers for those who were trying to come to America, but also just those who we lost, we were having to raise funds to bury them. Mm. Um, My grandfather almost got gutted. My grandmother was talking about, right, like amputations. And these are uh, traumatic experiences that they were retelling. Hmm. Um, And right, so that AP psychology class is what gave me the vocabulary about those experiences and what gave me the vocabulary about the outcomes that I was seeing, right? Hmm. If I was um, talking to a kid who was sad versus a kid who didn't want to talk because they were angry versus, right, Hmm. a kid who might've been acting out or associating with the deviant peer group because they felt that that peer group is who could understand them. Just getting the vocabulary around mechanisms and how they impact us and how our traumatic experiences can um, pose a risk to healthy development. But also I started to learn about, oh, psychology and therapy is a process of figuring out those mechanisms and teaching people and building up their skills and helping them. in a way that I could understand much more than the Latin roots of medicines that I needed to prescribe or the parts of the brains that I needed to memorize for neuroscience, right? So community-based participatory research and translational research. So how do we make what we have learned in science apply to those in the lay community? Um, mm. Those sorts of early experiences made me say, okay, I wanna be a psychologist, that's what it is. But still, I didn't know how. Right. Um, So I think certainly by the end of high school, I was sure that I wanted to be a psychologist. Um, Did you, did you have any, any people in your life who served as examples for what a psychologist could look like? Like what a psychologist was like, what, what, how did you know psychologists? Did you, did you have people in your life who were psychologists? Um, I, I wouldn't say that I had people in my life who were psychologists, but I had, um, resource officers at school. I had a guidance counselor at school. Um, I had my physician uncles. I certainly had people who were in medicine to talk to me about, Mm -hmm. right, how to get scholarships. I had Mm -hmm. my guidance counselor talking to me about financial aid because that was the next step. But to say, this is what a psychologist does and this is what you need to do to be able to get to grad school to do that no I had no idea and I did not have that example I didn't I didn't know I had to do research until junior year of college right right and I started scrambling before then I thought I just have to learn and be really smart and make good grades yeah be likable no 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 no. you need to have a program of research you need to know what you're going to do you need to have people who can write your recommendation letters you need Mm -hmm. to have thought about grad school before grad school um and certainly in high school when I knew I wanted to be a psychologist all I knew was literally it went from hugging babies to talking to babies Mm -hmm. but 
that's it. The the book, A Child Called It, the uh the writer, it's nonfiction, so it is based on his life story. So he did talk about meeting a psychologist and how impactful they were for him. Um, but he also had a social worker and he also had right people in social services who were helping him. Um, so I wasn't able to really tease apart what my role would be and certainly not how um, mm-hmm. based on that book or any of my early experiences. I think it was just my curiosity building and my vocabulary building. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I did go from hugging to try to talk to people about, well, what have, what have you thought about it this way? What if you told your story? Getting it out might help. I was trying. So um, research then became, so so you're, you're talking about a transition from like wanting right. to like he- have this like healing touch to to wanting to right. understand the mechanisms, which through research. Right. Um, yeah. Mm, yeah. That's interesting. And then, but you still want the clinical, you still want the clinical route. You still wanted to be... I still want to hug the babies. You want to hug the babies, but you also want to understand what brings them. So I've, right. And that's, I think that's where we started. Uh, I have tried to attack the problem of trauma in black kids from literally every angle. So that being the individual hug. So the individual therapy, that being through research to say, these are the mechanisms and these are the strategies that we know work. Mm -hmm. That being through training other psychologists to say integrating culture in this way works better, right? That being in mentoring the next generation to say you too can do this, right? To to say, right, I can only hug so many babies a day. But if I disseminate Uh it in research articles, you guys can read it and replicate it. If I do it in trainings, right, you guys can do continuing education and continue practicing it in supervision and consultation groups. If I do it in public health, right, I do it Mm -hmm. in public health as well. And that's just to disseminate it like you're doing via podcasts, via messaging campaigns, via yard signs that we have around, like literally however you can heal right these strategies work but getting that message out my voice is only so loud Mm. Um, so if I can give you a little bit of that so you can say it as well and your voice echoes and someone else picks up on what you're saying ripple uh, effect yeah it's a ripple effect but the science for me is so important because otherwise how do we know it works how do we replicate it how do we show the impact that um, we want to be able to continue. Right. Uh, you beat me to one of my later questions uh, about, you know, yeah, why why the research aspect? We'll get to that. There's like a whole discussion yeah, that I want to get into with you because yeah. because of what you told me last time about about you know your experience as a researcher as, as an um, as an academic as a professor. We'll talk yeah. about that in a second. But um, all that you're talking about right now is making me think of the book that I'm currently reading, which I'm sure you've read. Actually, maybe maybe not, but. I'm holding up the boy who was raised as a dog. Have you read this? No, I'm like, that sounds just like a child called it. That was the book that changed my life. Maybe I need to read that one. This book is single-handedly changing my life. Do you want to see what's going to change mine that I know that we talked very briefly last time? Look at this. You told me it's on my shelf. A long way gone. It's literally on my shelf. A long way gone. Yeah. So that's my next read. But yes, uh, the boy who was raised as a dog, I'll add it to my list. It's, it's by Dr. Bruce Perry, who is a psychiatrist. Um, and uh, that's funny. He's come up in two of my interviews now, but he wow. uh, he's an expert on on trauma. And he actually just wrote a book with Oprah uh, called What Happened to You. Have you heard of it? 
well, no. Okay. He's, and uh, you need to have him on your podcast next. Oh my God. I know. I, my friend okay. actually has a, has a, a student organ, a neuroscience uh, student organization at uh, Teachers College Columbia University where uh, they, it's called the Synapse. And each month they bring on a speaker to talk about uh, a topic related to the brain. So they actually wow. had Bruce Perry on their, uh, their, their series a couple months yeah. ago to talk yeah. about trauma in the brain. But anyway, I, I'm, I'm, it's, it's, it's fascinating and it's heartbreaking. And, yeah. and it's, I just have so many more questions. Like he's answering so many of my questions, but I have so many more questions about yeah. trauma and there's so much we still don't know. Um, and so, yeah, I'm sure we'll get into discussions of like trauma and, um, actually let's do that right now. <laughs> First of all, a big question that I get from my audience members who are interested in clinical work, particularly yeah. those interested in working with difficult or, or yeah, or traumatized populations, there may be this, like this pull, this want to like help, but, uh, underneath it is, is also a fear and a hesitation. Uh, of how that would affect you as well as a, as a, as a person, as a clinician. Um, and so I'm curious for you, like, was it an active consideration of like, I want to, I want to work on trauma or was it? Yeah, it yeah. was. It, okay. it, it, so it was active and I had that very same fear. I told you even before I got the vocabulary, my innate response is just to cry. I'm a cry baby. I'm very expressive. So my fear was, what if I am what if I become upset and now the client is having to console me when I'm supposed to be consoling them? Yeah. Um, I've and I that fear a lot. Yeah. And especially if you're doing child Which, psychology. Right. Um, I had that fear and I just discussed it really early on in supervision to say, right, this is work that's really impactful and meaningful, um, but sometimes really difficult to manage. Right. And I had to work with my supervisor in restructuring how I thought. Uh, restructuring um, how I thought about the work that I was doing. So no, it's not this poor kid, right? This is a kid who's really resilient, who's coming to you for help, who you can help. Um, so restructuring how I was thinking about that, but also restructuring how I approached versus avoided having those sessions and knowing that the more that we approach, the more we get used to having these difficult conversations, mm. the easier they are to have. Um, so if you do have that calling and you know that the work is important to you, thinking about the same things that we tell our clients or that you will be telling your clients, when you're avoiding, it's, it's to protect yourself. Mm -hmm. um, but it also might cause you to miss out on some really important experiences, right? Um, and oftentimes what we're avoiding is never as bad as we imagine. So dropping a few tears in session, right? We're always going to feel however we feel about it. I think early on in treatment, you might feel less professional. You might feel incompetent. You might feel guilty, like you're putting something back on your client. Um, but even reframing that as an expression of empathy mm -hmm. and reframing that as a way to build rapport to validate your client about the experience that they went through and to move forward, to keep addressing it and to say, we're going to get through this. We're going to understand and correct any inaccurate thoughts or any harmful feelings that you're having or any behaviors that um, you're enacting in because of what you experienced, right? So we're going to um, try to help and to heal in that way. But 
right? Validating that experience that whatever it is that's triggering you or traumatized, or I don't want to say traumatizing you, but we think about vicarious trauma. Right. It's a, it's um, real. It is, it is, it is. And that is something that I think is really important to validate um, and to say, right? After you have that session, um, take care of yourself. Just like you're telling your clients, you're talking about relaxation, you're talking about building your toolbox or your makeup bag or however you conceptualize um, a safety plan or a care package or self-care and restoration. Mm -hmm. That is to say, you've gone through as a therapist something that's emotionally taxing as well. So mm -hmm. what can you do immediately after a session to take a couple deep breaths, to practice PMR, to restructure whatever thoughts you have about even your performance as a therapist in those sessions? And that's why I think um, supervision and consultation is really important, but also just the, um, the intent, right? Uh, the intent to help, the intent to overcome what you perceive is an impact. Because oftentimes, right, if you're in a therapeutic setting, it's an intimate setting and you're able to talk through that impact at the time by talking about your intention. So that's to say, uh, this is hard for me. I'm sure it was really hard for you. I can't imagine how hard it was for you, but what I wanna do is give you the space to talk about that. Um, and what I wanna do is get you to the place to where we're able to approach rather than avoid, whatever the symptoms are that they're experiencing. Right. Um, and through that, hopefully it becomes easier for both of us, hmm. uh, but particularly you who had to live through those experiences. So I don't want you to take my tears as, oh my goodness, it's too heavy for me. It's authenticity. Um, yeah, it's an I'm, I'm, authentic I'm reaction. I'm, I'm feeling what you're telling me, um, right? Hmm. And putting the focus back on the client. So no, you don't need to consult me. I'm fine. <laughs> I'm just feeling what you're feeling. But I do want to give you that space to continue feeling and exploring. Hmm. Hmm. Have you... Have you experienced that or did you experience that a lot in your in your training and have you gotten better at it? You know what's funny? When it was with the kids, I never cried. When it was with the kids, it was always lighthearted. We would bond over my multicolored nail polish. We would bond over approaching and attacking and beating whatever it was that hurt them or traumatized them or figuring out defeating this monster, right? We were able to come up with a ton of analogies that... Huh. Um, made it easy for me to help them and to feel like I was helping. It wasn't until I had my first 27-year-old, this was a long time ago, 27-year-old Black female client who was in a domestic violence relationship. Um, and she had suffered a gun wound to her head oh, and she man. came into her first session and she still had the bandage on and I remember going home that night and she was, this was prolonged exposure that I was doing and she was retelling and retelling. Um, but this was, I think the first instance that she just had to run through and tell the instance that um, caused this traumatic injury. And I went home that night and I bought a crime bar. <laughs> so it wasn't in session even, it was mm -hmm. post session. So in session, yes, I had that reaction and I was able to talk through it, but it's sitting with me didn't happen until um, there was a client who looked just like me. Um, and whose experiences I could relate to immediately. Hmm. And that is work that I had to do. I didn't even want to go back and see her again. <laughs> I had to do that work wow. to say um, the benefit and the help will far surpass the impact that you're experiencing right now. Um, but I went home, I brought a, I bought a crime bar. I was 
arguing with people for no reason. My guard was up. My defenses were up. I, you know, I felt like it was me. Um, and I certainly had to talk to my supervisor. I had to convince myself through convincing from them to approach and to see how I can help and to see how if this is that difficult for me and triggering or traumatizing for me to imagine the impact that it was having on this young lady. And at that time, I was the only Black female therapist on internship, right? So to imagine the impact of having someone who looks like her helping her heal. And I, in that moment, realized that the benefit of me providing this service uh, would far surpass the immediate impact and that we could both heal through that process. So wow. it was um, somewhat selfish, right? I knew from that moment on, there's no story that can be told <laughs> that would impact me in a way that I couldn't recover from. Um, but I also knew from that moment on that the work that I was doing was very important, particularly for people who look like me. Hmm. Um, young, she was an emerging adult through adulthood. Um, yeah. And it also solidified, again, my research interests, right? How do we make uh, traditional or standard treatments culturally appropriate for those who don't have clinicians who look like me? How can we empower uh, white clinicians or clinicians of other ethnicities to broach the topic of ethnicity and identity and how that impacts our traumatic experiences or even exacerbates or contributes to them? Mm. I don't think I've ever had a clinician on this podcast talk in that much detail slash vulnerability about an experience like that in the therapy room that like deeply, deeply like shook them to the core. And I think it's those discussions. Uh, I, I, I don't know yet how it's going to help me figure out if or when I want to be a clinician, but I know it will. Uh, and so I know it will for others in my audience and thank you for doing that and telling that story. Yeah. So I'll say, right. The, the moral of that story for me would be the work is important. You can heal yourself through that process as well. We talk about, uh, research is me search, but we often don't talk about clinical work for the impact that it, and the benefit that it has on us. I can't even think of what that would be. But I do think that it's really important to seek out consultation, mm-hmm. talk about those kind of uh, worries, mm-hmm. right? Talk about those worries that you have with your supervisors who also have those worries and to, to know that it's okay if you shed a tear, but how to not make that tear the focus of the session, right? right? How to make that tear something that builds rapport. Um, or validates the client and then yeah. turn the focus back on that client. Mm. Uh, you you keep, I mean, it's just every time I interview a clinician on my podcast, I, I really, I, I can't emphasize enough how, how much I was so set on not going the clinical route before I started Psych Mike. I was so like, that's not me. I'm not going to do that. It's too hard. Uh, I don't have the emotional like capacity for that work, but I mean, again, you're reinforcing to me how mm. meaningful this work is. And like, I, it's just undeniable how, how I, I don't know if I feel pulled to clinicians because like on an intellectual level, I just feel pulled to that. Or if I myself want to do that work, uh, I have to do that 
figuring out for myself, but uh, these conversations are so helpful to me. And so I hope it's helpful to others as well who are listening uh, to try to figure out, you know, if this is the right path or if, if they've already decided like how to cope with the difficult things that come with the job. Um, so you decided, uh, pretty much you said your junior year of, of college that you wanted to pursue a clinical path, uh, and that you wanted to do research as well. And then you started scrambling and, and, and getting all that research experience you'd need. Uh, I want to talk a little about like the decision-making behind what programs you wanted to apply to, like how you knew a PhD uh, was going to be right for you, yeah. uh, how you chose the program you, you decided to, to go to. So if we could have a little discussion about that, cause that's where a lot of my audience members are right now. Yeah. So I think I was really lucky. Um, I did undergrad at Georgia state university and they had just a ton of resources. Once I, once I realized what I wanted to do, I went to student support services um, and I got engaged with what's called the McNair program. So that program is for first-generation or non-traditional students to get the pipeline to graduate school. And they are not particular about what graduate program you're in, if it's mm -hmm. PsyD versus counseling versus marriage and family therapy versus social work. So I had the opportunity then to explore. And I think that the decision really came down to what I wanted to do at the end of the day. And as you can hear, by the way, I talk about hugging babies, but helping everyone. Um, I realized that I needed to do it through, at least in this, at this time, what was being presented to me was clinical psychology, community psychology, or clinical community. So I did make that decision just based on conversations with mentors. Mm -hmm. um, Can we talk a little about what community psychology is and, and what, like why, why that was something that pulled you or like how, how that particular emphasis was going to help you do, do that like widespread dissemination of the things that mattered to you? Right. So community psychology is taking the principles of clinical psychology, testing and evaluating and disseminating them across um, the larger subset of the population. So when we think about clinical psychology, these are individuals who have um, clinically significant problems that they're dealing with. Um, community is to say that there's a larger subset of our population who do not have these clinical or clinically significant problems, but they could benefit from the mechanisms, the coping strategies, the, the research even, um, and they can contribute to the research. So a large part of the, the community research that I do is to get um, members of the community as participants um, from the ground level of developing of evaluating and of disseminating um, evidence-based treatments. So for me, it was important to not only take the individual approach, but to expand that to, again, more of us. <laughs> um, right. And across a range of um, these outcomes, right? Some people are going to meet full criteria for PTSD. Some kids are just going to act out a little bit. Some kids might just be disengaging from school. Um, and they're not seeking treatment, but there is a way to engage them in the schools that they're already in. I've done community-based research in barber shops, in hair wow. salons, in churches. So it's really meeting people where they are and working with them mm -hmm. to make services, to make organizations, to make treatments 
available, accessible, effective, equitable, right? So depending on the, the lens that you take to community psychology, um, certainly it's just a, a larger uh, subset of the population and integrating them into the research and the work that you're doing and then disseminating it back out to the same community. Um, oh, it sounds like such a perfect, the, the program that you found, which is a clinical community PhD at USC yeah. or uh, University of Southern, South, sorry, South Carolina. I don't know why yeah. English is not working. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, is, is, it sounds like a perfect mix because you could learn how to heal and hug black babies, but then you could also, you could also learn how to make the communities, uh, that they grow up in, um, you know, prevent them from traumatizing them in the first place and empower them to heal themselves and to continue that cycle. A lot of what I say when I go into the communities is, listen, you're already doing it. You already know what works. I just want to be able to tell other people what works and to to spread Uh what works um, and to encourage you to keep doing what works. So a lot of times, you know, we're just healing and we're surviving and we're thriving, but we don't, like I said, we don't have words to describe racial socialization. But when I talk to them about the talk and I talk to them about their process of healing, they're like, oh yeah, we're doing all that. Yeah, I can tell you about all that. And then we're able to now update the research um, and update the evidence base if we're able to see, right, these types of messages lead to these types of outcomes. These types of messages, when you face discrimination, lead to these types of outcomes, right? Um, Really isolating what what works and what doesn't work. Uh Uh So we're not just, you know, all just out here trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. to say we have a long history of figuring out. So let's write it down and teach each other and right. spread it around. Yeah. So going into grad school. Okay. So, so you were, did I, did we fully cover the question I had before? Yeah. So, so was, how did you know, how did you decide on the program you decided on? So I decided on the program. So what, what I'll say about clinical community programs is that they're not many. So my mentor who I, that I found in the clinical community program at Georgia State um, told me to look for other community, clinical community programs and to identify researchers who are doing the same type of work. Um, and that is what allowed me to narrow it down from maybe 50 schools across the nation, which is not many, to five, which also is not many. Right. And then um, going through that process and reaching out to those individuals who were doing that research, telling them my interest, talking to them about projects that I had imagined, I was obsessed by this point uh, once I built the vocabulary. But the McNair program is what taught me how to engage with the researchers and, and give my elevator speech about right. what my research interests were and to ask them about what work they were engaging in that I could contribute to, to get the training that I needed to do what I wanted to do at the next level. Um, You're talking about such important stuff right now. Uh, this is such, a, this is like at the crux of like all the questions I get about how, you know, how to become a competitive applicant to graduate programs and yeah. uh, what are the things you should actually focus on? What, like, what's actually important? And, and for you, I mean, I think you will agree that research experience for a PhD program is number one. Like, even if it's a clinical program, oftentimes focusing on research experience for a clinical PhD is, is going to have more weight uh, than, than anything else. So, so what I'll say is experience and fit, Mm -hmm. because I see some 
very experienced applicants because they're doing, you know, research on psychosis in elderly white adults. And I'm not going to be able to train you in a way that's beneficial. Mm -hmm. You're not going to be able to learn from me in a way that's beneficial. So yes, your previous experiences and that fit. Yes. So you want to get research. And I say that to say, as you're saying, I need research experience. If you know that you want to work with black babies, don't go into a monkey lab, right? <laughs> if you know that you want to work with autism, don't go into schizophrenia lab. Oncology. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, so yes, you need experience, but not any experience. You need to hone in your research interests and get experience in that either that area or using those methods mm -hmm. so that you can tell a story because we're talking about application components. One of those components is a personal statement. You got to write about your previous and future research interests. And that is to say, if you're writing a story that says, I tried rats, then I tried monkeys, then I tried learning the brain, then I tried schizophrenia, and now I'm in old people in gerontology, <laughs> you need to take some time to figure out what you want to do. So I know whether or not I can train you and whether or not you can contribute to my lab, right? So oftentimes we have highly competitive straight A honors students who we don't know what to do with them <laughs> in terms of the training. Um, so what I would say is make sure that you're wanting the experience that the mentor and the program will provide. So mm -hmm. clinical PhD programs, clinical community, they're different than other programs in that you get matched to a mentor or a preceptor. And that is based on their research interests and in the lab that you'll be getting your research training in. So it is really important to know um, what your interests are and to start getting experience in that area. And like you asked me, how did I find that school? I had another mentor um, who was in education at the time, but she went to the University of South Carolina. Um, and she was able to tell me about that clinical community program. She was able to tell me about researchers who I should look into, right? So um, there is one way to just jump online and get on Google and type in your interests and see what grad programs exist, but also talk to people about mm -hmm. your interests, get that elevator speech down. And then people will start oh, saying, my oh my goodness, do you know my friend Rita Walker in Texas? Do you know my friend so-and-so? Do you know my friend so-and-so? And they're saying friend, right? That means, yeah, I'm going to be able to write you a recommendation letter, but she's going to be able to call me up. And that phone call is oftentimes what makes the difference between two candidates. Really? So so that's the thing. Okay, so admissions. Oh, oh, it's a thing. It's a thing. It's a thing. It's a thing because that also means, right? I cannot provide everything that a student needs, especially as I get multiple students. So that means that friend who called me up when that student gets here, and we're talking about their first year project and their thesis and their dissertation and their comps. I'm going to need some data for them or they're going to need someone who can provide additional training that maybe I can't do. Right. Maybe they're, they have an uh, interest um, that is adjacent to mine, but not identical to. Um, and I need to be able to call colleagues and friends to say, hey, you got this data set? They're working on a pub. Or do you have another student who we can collaborate with? So it just makes productivity, collaboration easier. And okay. it makes getting into grad school easier and more likely. Uh, it's what makes you, you know, the difference between an application and a stack and one that you pull out. So, so just to clarify, um... You're saying, well, first, when you apply and you have like references, you have people who are writing you your letters of rec. Right. Um, those are people that the admissions committees can can then like actually call and be like, oh, yeah, yes. OK. Yeah, yeah. And then also you're saying another another reason why that's 
uh, important is that your potential advisor that you get matched with can also call the people that you said were your references to say, is oh, that what you're saying? Oh, well, so what I'm saying is the second part. The first part, I said yes, but that doesn't happen. Admissions committees are those are us. Yes, <laughs> right. So are the faculty, happens, yeah. Are the faculty, right. So that's one step. The one step is we look at all of our applications and if they say Aisha Metzger, those are getting reviewed by Aisha Metzger and the second and third reviewers. We are the admissions committee. There's no one else that is sitting above us who's going through applicants. And that is a process of we're reading, we know our research interests, we know what we currently have going on. And we're reading to say, oh, okay, this is what they're interested in. This can contribute to my lab. I could train them in that. Um, and our colleagues know what we're doing as well. Right. So it, they're able to rate the potential fit of an applicant. I wonder if I'm telling you stuff that I shouldn't be, but I'm pretty sure I should. Well, why not? No, I've definitely heard this type of stuff. Okay, before. okay, okay, like, okay. I'm like, is this a secret? I don't know. No, 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 it's not. It shouldn't uh, be. If it is a secret, all, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't yeah. be. And I was gonna say, I certainly tell all students who talk to me about it. I don't know that I've said it on a podcast before. So yeah, disseminate this. Let's spread the word. Why um, not? Like we are the admissions committee. There is an admissions office and there is a graduate school, right? But that's just to make sure that if we admit someone who has who doesn't meet our minimum standards, we can say, oh yeah, but they're a great fit for my lab, period, point blank. Um, so we are able to advocate for students. We do have criteria that we mm. look for. Um, and there are other people. So it's not just up to me. There are other raters, there are other people. Right. Um, but it's I us. You. It's, it's okay. So now, now, now the natural question that I feel like comes up for students is like, okay, I know, I know fit is important. I know that, um, like having people like kind of like a, having a few people in my corner who know me and who know my research interests and who know my skills and my strengths to advocate for me. I know that's important. Um, and then I feel like what students, psychology students struggle with a lot, because this isn't really like an emphasis in a lot of programs or undergrad programs is like how to do the right networking, like how to, how to reach out yeah. to the right people and how to <sighs> like, did you reach out to your faculty, yeah. like advise the person who ended up being your faculty advisor before, yeah, uh, before did. you got in and, I and, did. and then, but so that's, that's the thing. And how do you know? Do. And what do you say? And how what do you know if it's point? right? Is it going to hurt me? Is it going to like, in what situation? It's just so, yeah, it is overwhelming. You never know. So networking, I would say as much as you're able to get access to conferences, that is when faculty have the time. We're there to network. We want to talk. We love. And right, we often, I'll speak for myself, I'm facing imposter syndrome amongst my colleagues. So I love when students come up to me and say, your work is so great. And this and that. And yes. I want to work with you. I'm like, yes, tell me more, right? Because I'm nervous about going to talk to Gene Brody. So you're you're helping me as well. Um, so I say that to say, um, I get it, but yeah, you gotta do it. You gotta do it. Networking in person is important. Go to conferences, talk to people around your department, tell them what you're, in, what you're interested in and they'll start putting you in contact. Um, and yeah. what you can do then is you can say, can you send an email on my behalf? And that's the best. The best thing to happen is for me to send my friend an email to say, I just met this brilliant student. Their research interests are in line with yours. I hope that this is a mutually beneficial relationship. And then you let them do what they got to do. Another thing you can do is just like you did, so-and-so told me about you, or I met so-and-so at this conference, or I have been reading Google and stalking your articles and I am so interested. Send a cold email, make it very brief, Make sure first, please check our websites to see whether or not we're taking students mm -hmm. the next year because you're going to be wasting your time. If we are, 
Send a cold email that just says, I'm so interested in your research. Here is my CV. Here's a writing sample. Here are the plans that I have for submitting to your program. And you'll see, they'll send you back some stuff that says, here's some articles that you can read in the meantime. Or they might just say, I'll be on the lookout for your application. Yes, I'm taking students, best of luck moving forward. But we keep that in mind when you come with your game typed, you come with a professional email that shows that you're driven, that shows that you are able to communicate, that shows what your research interests are above and beyond that two-page personal statement. So the more we can know you, some faculty now that we're on Zoom have started doing like preliminary Zoom interviews um, just to lay eyes and have an informal conversation, but a lot of us don't have the time for that. Mm -hmm. So as much as you're able to just send that cold email, be super enthusiastic, keep that I was about that to in your step. Yeah. Keep it short, right? We're busy. <laughs> Keep it short. Yes. I love you and everything you do. These are my interests. I want to come work for you. I see that you're state taking students. If you can't see, say, I am not sure whether you're taking students, right? Yes. I see that you're taking students. You can ask if you're not sure. I want you to let you know that I am deeply interested in being involved in whatever lab. And you can even ask especially since we're virtual, are there any current initiatives or research projects that you're engaged in that you need additional help on? And now you're volunteering in a research lab and they know your name and they know your face and then they're going to see your application and say, oh, I know this person. So as much as you can get um, involved in a way that's helpful. So I said, make sure you check the website. Don't ask questions that you can find answers to online. Please God, right? Um, yeah. make sure you look through the program handbook, make sure you truly want to go to this university and be in this program and work with this mentor, make sure you have the right name at the top, because I know we get excited and we want to send the same email to a bunch of people. I can't tell you how many times I have been doctor, somebody other than Metzger. Oh man. And, and that is what shows me Kiss oh, of death. Was doing data collection, you know, they'd have a participant ID on the wrong reimbursement number. I need to see it's that. Careless. Yeah. Yeah, right. Show me a writing sample that shows me that you can think critically. Show me a research idea that has some hypotheses, right? So show me that you are ready to do what grad school is because it is a lot. Shit is hard. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And if yeah. you're able to show me that as an undergrad, you're engaged in research and you're networking and you're doing these other things, that's when I'm starting to see, okay, this person's ready for grad school. But if you come to me and you've never done any research and you don't take the initiative to send emails and to follow up and you have careless mistakes when you do, I'm thinking, okay, this person needs some research experience. This person needs some time before they come to contribute to my lab and to receive the training. I don't want to be doing the training you should have gotten undergrad, right? Um, and in those cases, sometimes I'll see a CV and I'll say, mm -mm, if I have the infrastructure, maybe you should do a post back. Maybe you should volunteer in my lab for a while. Maybe I have a paid position. Maybe I have a colleague, but we can tell very quickly whether or not you're ready for grad school. Oh my God. I feel like we've, I've hit the pot of gold. Uh, oh, yeah. this is no, my God. I, it's like, I feel like I could do a whole episode with you just about like this. Um, That's cool. Yeah. It's, yeah. There, and I always say there's a formula. There are very is, yeah. that we look for. Um, there are very specific experiences that will get you there. There's very specific resources as well, right? I talked about the McNair program. So academic enrichment programs, pipeline programs. If you have any of those at your university, just go there and literally yeah. open your arms and say, help, help. 
help me. And there'll be tons of resources and tons of people who will answer your questions and who'll just throw things yeah. at you for you to think yes. over. What's the difference between clinical and school and PsyD and PhD? All these things that we don't know. Um, the answers are out there though. If you're if you're willing to put yourself out there and say you don't know. Uh, yeah. So, Period. yes. Right, but we have imposter syndrome. We think that we should have it figured out and know how to get to grad school and we're going to fake it till we make it. And it doesn't work. No. No, the work is yeah. to say, I have no idea what I'm doing. You guys have done it before. Just like, just like what I do when I go out and to do community-based participatory research, right? I'm an expert in one thing. I know I want to be a psychologist. You're doing it. You're walking it. You're talking it. Please tell me how you're doing it so mm -hmm. that I can replicate it and do it for myself. What, what do you think this, what do you think I'm doing? I mean, <laughs> no, seriously, this is, I'm trying to do it for everybody else. Outreach you're doing public health service you're doing and I, I mean i don't need to tell you anymore i Thank told you, you for an hour last time you're doing such important work in disseminating this like i said right i say this to anyone who signs up for a one hour session with me on mondays right yeah. putting this on the podcast to say listen to this listen to this anyone who shoots me an email i'm going to send them your podcast episode we're going to cross post it but right i'm going to send them your podcast episode to say she's having this conversation with many more people. They have many more perspectives than just my one voice, right? There's so much data that's been collected about how to get into grad school, what career decisions to make. Listen to Maya. It's my you. I, I didn't mean for this to become a, a praise psych Mike uh, little session, but thank ah. you. Thank you. Um, I, I thank you. Um, I'm going to do it on the intro of my podcast. Don't you worry. <laughs> We're going to hype you up and tell them exactly who you are and what you do because it's so necessary. Thank you it's so, so much. Important. Thank you. Um, I will say too. I okay. I guess I guess I'll plug it. Uh, so you were just talking about uh, sending emails and like the you know keep it concise. Like this is what you should say. Okay. A lot of you are still going to be confused and daunted and don't know where to start. My newsletter. Uh, please sign up for the newsletter because um, you will receive templates. I will show yeah. you exactly how to send those emails i do it all the time and you know for podcast interviews but i've also done it in research settings and other settings just to learn from mentors so if you need help wow. sending those emails sign up for my newsletter you'll get all those materials um yeah that's such a service <laughs> i it's just something that like i used to be so so deathly afraid to do because i didn't know what to say i didn't know what they wanted to hear i thought you know i just i, I didn't know where to start i was like really just daunted by it and you did so well i'm sure you had to follow up with me but you did so well I actually don't think I did. tell me what you want oh okay well that means that you were short and to the point and very engaging <laughs> i said yes girl let's talk but usually i'm used to um just following up on this email i sent you and then they'll give the more concise version i'm like oh i could respond to that but i couldn't process all that other stuff so yes use your template use access the newsletter and get that template so you can find out how to concisely uh, get information and provide information about yourself yes. in a way that'll make them look out for your application. And, and I think the key is, well, first of all, I didn't say where you can sign up, go to www.psychmike.com, literally the landing page, you'll see the like little field to enter your email and just do it there. But, um, the, the key that you mentioned is like, in, is also like enthusiasm. Like you have to, you have to be enthusiastic if you're just sending like a dull okay maybe it's concise maybe it conveys certain things but that are important but if you're not saying like 
I'm over the moon about, <laughs> obviously you don't say I'm over the moon, but like if you're not conveying some sort of excitement about what this person yeah. does or about what you, the, the prospect of you doing it, right? it's just going to be like, who wants to work with like this dull, boring person? And so it's hard over email to convey that enthusiasm. Um, but there are formulas. I'm sure you could also find them online, but like psych my newsletter, you'll, you'll get all, you'll get all that. Um, moving on. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, um, you okay wow i have so many questions for you where do i want to go um i was gonna say take your time but we got like 24 i know we got 20 more minutes so (laughs) here's the deal what do you wish you knew before grad school y'all should see my face what (laughs) she did her jaw just dropped to the floor (laughs) whoa Uh, oh answer you know how you know how um how mothers always say you're gonna understand this when you're a mother and then you haven't become a mother neither have i but i've seen people when they become mothers say aha i understand what i wish i knew was exactly that that my mentor despite and dr shauna cooper i love you with all my heart and she knows this i i tell her all the time and i call her back now and i say you were right (laughs) you were right about literally everything (laughs) I man I went to grad school and I went to grad school wanting to do for my master's thesis the research that I'm doing today and my mentor had to sit me down and say okay there are 90 steps before that this is how we carve out a thesis that will get you out of here. This is how we carve out a comps paper that will get you. This is all going to lead to what you just described to me. But what you just described to me is not going to happen in the next five years. And that, and I, when I tell you, ask her, I'll interview her next. When I tell you, I fought back so hard. I came to our next meeting with a timeline about how I could make it possible in five years. And this is the research I'm going to do. And you're not going to clip my wings. And I know best and did not. Was totally right. Was totally right about everything from boundaries that she wanted to set that I was like, no, but you're my mommy. And you have (laughs) um, expectations that she had for me from feedback that she gave that I just did not want to internalize and digest. I remember at one point she said, and I'm going to say this in the way that I received it. She said it much more lovingly, but what I heard was if you want to be, if you want to get your PhD and succeed, you don't go painting with your mother for her birthday. And I was like, what are you? <laughs> this lady's evil and she's this and she's that. And really what she said and what she, what she truthfully said was you need to be better at time management. You need to schedule and set your breaks. You need to work hard leading up to your breaks so you don't come back following those breaks overwhelmed. She was setting me up for success. And I was fighting back. All I heard was, she don't want me painting with you, mommy. No, right? So listen, I wish I would have listened. I wish I would have listened. Yeah, man, I, I knew that I had it figured out and I was going through imposter syndrome. So I was faking it till I make it. Had I just said, I'm trying, <laughs> help. Had I said help more, had I said help more, let me just stop there. Um, listen to my mentor and ask for help. Um, don't think that I had it figured out because I still don't. Hmm. Um, and to pace myself. Hmm. 
I still haven't learned that one. I'm still doing way too many things at way too few times. Um, but I, I, I certainly internalize the need to rest and recover. I certainly internalize the need to make sure that I have a solid research foundation, right? Because otherwise I'd just be out in the community implementing some program that I didn't know why it worked. I wouldn't be able to replicate it. I wouldn't know anything about manualized treatments. I wouldn't know how to evaluate a program. I would be lost <laughs> just mm. thinking I was helping and not being able to show it, right? not being able to replicate it. Um, and the yeah. advice that she gave me was to lead me to be able to do that very thing. So not to just do one program, mm. but be able to evaluate existing programs and make them better to be able to- The foundation, yeah. 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 And stop, I'm gonna stop you because okay. if you are considering if you are still not sure about whether or not you need to have any clinical piece into your future trajectory, I'm going to tell you, yes. Um, and it's only because of the ways that we've interacted. It's only because I've seen you reflectively listening. I've seen you, if I'm rambling, you know how to interject, you know how to stop. Your clinical skills are... A1, you're, you're ready. Um, oh my gosh. Thank you. Any kind of, well, let me say you're ready for whatever it is that you want to do. Um, so continue these pursuits, continue amplifying uh, the information that you're getting. And I know, right. Like you're going to land, you might be in administration, right? You might, I don't know. <laughs> Keep doing what you're doing. There are, um, there are big things in your future. And I, I definitely want to speak that life into you and let you know that this is really important. Even the questions that you're asking, they're so thoughtful. Thank um, you. Thank you. Uh, it, I, I mean, practice helps a lot. Like, I feel like my first interview with Dr. Weiji Ma was like, I, I'm sure I asked good questions, but like some good questions at least, but um, it does, it does help to do this over and over and over again. And I will like, just like as a, larger you know kind of lesson i guess around like seeking out mentors like what we said what we were talking about earlier and, and making connections in the field is like you're not going to establish like a lifelong meaningful you might but you it, you might not also with the first person you reach out to so it'll take practice to like and also there's so many people out there that are doing probably the thing that you you aspire to do right i i just I emphasize so much to my audience, the, the, the power of like letting yourself seek help from people who are a few set, steps ahead of you. And this, what you just said is what you wish you knew before grad school is like letting yourself just find those people and yeah. receive it when you get it and yeah. be grateful when you get it. I think that I was always, um, oh my God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Cooper. Um, but also right. And still now, 30 years later, Dr. Cooper, Dr. Cooper, Dr. Cooper, also holding her to that esteem, but really wanting to do this work, right? So reconciling that in myself to say, you're going to do the work, pace yourself, you're setting the foundation to do the work mm -hmm. for a longer period of time, right? Mm -hmm. um, that for me, I think was a good reminder. Thank you. You, you give such good advice. You, you really do. And you're relatable too. I feel like yeah, it's just, it's really good all around. Just really good. Um, just rambling. So, thank you. <laughs> um, so 
Oh, I have a million questions for you, but let's uh, let's talk about your work now in academia. Um, so it's interesting. You went in knowing like you had this like almost too clear vision of what you wanted to do. Uh, and your mentor said, you know, let's take a few steps back. Um, first of all, do you think it's really important before going into a, a PhD program knowing like knowing exactly what you want to do? Um, if not what you want to do, the methods by which you want to practice. Okay. Um, knowing the constructs that you're interested in, mm -hmm. knowing the population that you want to impact. Mm -hmm. There has to be something. Otherwise, why this program and not the others that exist? Yeah. Um, knowing the impact that you want to have. There has to be, otherwise you have an empty personal statement or like I said, that scattered one or the one that's not purposeful. Mm -hmm. um, so my favorite thing to see, oh, I'm gonna give you guys some vocabulary. My favorite thing to see and even to say now as I'm still applying for grants is uh, if anyone asks for something personal, you give like that very quick one sentence blurb and then you say these personal experiences led to my professional pursuits these training experiences are leading to these goals or these outcomes that I want to see. So making it intentional, making it tie back into your uh, professional and personal interests um, and passions is mm -hmm. important. Otherwise, what we know is you're not going to make it through grad school. I wouldn't have made it through grad school if I was in a neuropsych lab. I'm not interested. It's I don't even want to say it's too hard because we're all smart, but the amount and the rigor of the work and the time that it takes and the, uh, it takes over your identity. So it's mm -hmm. something, if it's something that you don't identify with or relate to or buy into, literally you're going to quit. You're going to quit. Most, most that you'll do is you'll master out. Um, but certainly, um, master out, meaning you'll finish your master's and then you'll, you won't finish your PhD. Yeah. You'll peace correct. out. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Mm. Or you won't mm. even get in because I don't know the program that accepts someone who doesn't know what or right. why or how. So, so you do have, to have some vision. You know, okay, so you had that vision. You knew you knew you wanted to do research. You knew you still wanted to practice clinically. Which, by the way, do you still practice clinically? I do supervision. I'm not currently taking clients. Clients, and, okay. and as you said that, I was lying. Um, even though I was in a clinical community program at that time, I was just saying, oh, I'm just going to be a researcher. I'm going straight into academia, but I knew that I wanted to do the clinical work too. Um, but what you'll see about, uh, clinical psych PhDs in particular, right? They do emphasize the research. So I felt for who knows what reason I'll tell you guys don't do that. Um, I felt like I had to pretend. So I wasn't even really saying my clinical interests, um, except for how they applied to my research interests, but I love practicing, mm -hmm. uh, and I wish, right, that I could do those individual hugs. And I've started doing that through my qualitative research, um, empowering um, youth in that way and caregivers as well. Um, so can we can we actually talk about your research and your work yeah. now? It's just yeah. there's so many yeah. branches to the yeah. work that you do. And I, I can't not, like, we can't not spend the last bit of it on this. So tell me about the Empower Lab. Tell me about your mission and how how you're hugging babies everywhere, um, but also making it so that other people can also hug babies everywhere. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. you're hugging individual babies, but you're also making sure other communities and other, you know, I don't know, are you working, are you working on a policy level too? Are you, are you working with policymakers? 
Uh, I do work with policymakers as they relate to child victimizations and children's advocacy centers. Okay. Okay. Um, so not yet on the state or the national level, okay. um, but certainly um, organizational level and community-based levels. Wonderful. So tell me, tell me about the Empower Lab. Tell you about this research. So the Empower Lab is um, aimed at when we talk about community-based participatory research, that's to get them engaged. Um, so it stands for Engaging Minorities in Prevention, PO, Outreach, Wellness, Education, and Research. So all of these are important pillars, but they are towards eradicating and healing from both interpersonal trauma and racial trauma. Um, and our initiatives, like I talked about uh, very briefly, are from basic science, so collecting qualitative data to find out, or quantitative data to find out about those mechanisms that impact the relationship between trauma exposure and maladaptive outcomes, to find out about the impact of these protective practice processes like racial socialization, racial identity, um, as well as coping skills. So emotion regulation and cognitive restructuring are the main kind of outcomes that my basic science looks at so that we can take those results and integrate them into the translational research. So that translational research is to um, adapt current treatments it is to make them more culturally relevant by integrating those principles of uh, racial socialization, of racial identity into the cognitive and behavioral treatments that already exist, um, as well as community-based research. So we talked about that briefly, but that is um, to actually go into community-based organizations to evaluate the services that they provide um, to figure out where uh, service gaps exist. So if we see that black youth are getting referred for treatment, but they're not initiating, or if we see that black youth are initiating, but missing more sessions or not completing treatment or not benefiting from treatment, when we do those outcomes, we're able to evaluate those services um, and engage the communities, right? So to ask them, you came here, you were referred, what was that process like? What didn't go well? What can we do better? And then to ultimately improve those community organizations. Um, and then the last pillar is to disseminate that across communities and um, using public health approaches. So those public health approaches are like providing navigation services. So that is to say we have HIV treatment centers, we have children's advocacy centers, we have substance misuse centers, we have social services. How do we connect all of these services so that people are able to navigate those services and benefit from them? Social workers, for example, psychologists. Mm -hmm. um, Wow. And to right, disseminate in those organizations the public health messaging, again, that we know works. So we have very brief messaging campaigns that say things like racial trauma is real or recognize the signs of racial trauma, how to be an effective ally. We're able to disseminate the strategies that we know work. And even on those very brief public health messaging campaign slides or posters or signs, we have QR codes that lead back to yeah. the more detailed resources, readings, coping strategies. We have a care package for racial healing. And these are all based on, again, the evaluations that we've done, the translational research that we've done, and the basic science data that we've collected. Yeah. Um, so it's important, right, to be able to say this is what works, this is what we know, rather than I don't even know what the alternative messaging could be, right? Um, but to right. have it 
evidence-based behind it um, for me is important. And again, the E in empower is to engage, right? So not to say I'm coming into the communities to collect this data and I'm leaving. I'm providing the trainings, I'm providing the services, I'm engaging them in the research. Um, the outcomes of the research are able to present some of the research. My presentations now are so much better because mm -hmm. I had teenagers, I had graphic designers, I had community members, I even had students in our lab come in and make them more engaging and give their input on them. And, and research participants have been able to say, this is not beneficial. This is not the way we go through cognitive restructuring. This, right. this is not a relevant example for kids like me, right? So to make um, the treatments, the public health messaging more engaging, we utilize the basic science and the translational and the community-based research. Hmm. Um, it's incredible. So it's a very roundabout way of saying, you know, I'm, I'm trying um, to heal Black babies, um, to eradicate anti-Black racism, to uh, implement strategies that effectively help us overcome interpersonal stressors on the individual level in community orgs who are already doing this work, uh, but also across the population. Hmm. Hmm. It's cool that you are able to do this public health work too. And I know you did your postdoc in public health. We won't have time to talk about that, but it's so cool that that was an option for you too. So for any of you who are like super multi-passionate and you love clinical work and you love community uh, participatory action research and you love public health, like, look, Aisha did it. Ha, yeah. ha, 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 ha. I'm a mad woman, but you truly can. You truly can. Yeah. And it's a matter of, like I said, talking to people about what your interests are, right? So I was talking about this community-based work and I don't remember who it was at this time, but certainly, um, or maybe I was in a conference or in a talk, who knows, but hearing about public health and seeing the impact that it could have and applying it to the principles and the values that I have is what showed me, oh, I can reach and help more people. Yeah. And then, right, you just figure out, okay, what's the next level of training that I need to be able to do that? And that's what postdocs are designed for. They're designed to um, kind of supplement the training in between PhD and whatever your next level is. So if you identify a gap, I say, oh, I need this public health piece. And I just went and got it. So cool. So cool. Uh, and that's the cool thing about a PhD too, is, is how much it gives you so many options, you know, it's, it doesn't pigeonhole you, even though you do get super specialized and you come, you know, more closer to an expert on something, it also yeah. just opens so many doors. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, before we end, there's one thing that I wanted to ask you about you, you are an, you are an academic, you, you are faculty at, at, um, at, a, at an academic institution, but yeah. the work, the research that you do is different than most, than most academics. And so I had a question for you around like the skills that you use or the, the skills that require you to, uh, or that help you be successful as a researcher at a higher ed institution. But I think it's different for you as well than it is for the majority of researchers. So I'm curious if you have yeah. any reflections yeah, on that. I think, I think so. What I'll say is the type of research is different. Um, it takes a little longer to do qualitative research than it does quantitative research. Um, but certainly I think the impact of that work makes that worth it. <laughs> How do I do it in an academic setting? I have started, um, let me not say trying to decolonize academia, but certainly to uh, make sure that I'm in a program that values and benefits the type of research that I do, make sure that I'm engaged in team science, right? Because 
um, right, I do a certain type of research, but there are other methodologies. There are statisticians who are necessary. And I'll say that all researchers, all productive researchers are similar to me in that way, in that they take their skill, they do it well, but they build a team around them of people who can also mm. um, play their individual role. So I know my role. <laughs> and whereas I might need to look for a statistician, um, a statistician might need to look for someone who is able to consider disparities, who's mm -hmm. able to consider ethnic differences, who's able to get you to ask questions about your research that you haven't, um, or in a way that you haven't. Um, mm -hmm. So I think, yes, I'm different from other researchers in the methods or the time that it takes, but I think I'm very much the same in that to the skill that's necessary mm -hmm. is the insight into your own uh, what you're bringing to the table, the skill of asking for help and building a team, and then project management. So that just means being organized, um, managing your time, being able to delegate, being able to transfer from delegation to facilitation. Like, okay, I've given someone a task. How do I make sure that happens? Um, mm -hmm. uh, we all start with micromanaging at first, but then how do we build a hierarchy, right? To say, uh, I'm going to put a postdoc and then a research coordinator and then right. a grad student and then an undergrad. So building in or building up a team, I think so that you're not overloaded. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, I mean, yeah. I'm always overloaded. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> with that, um, asking for help. Right. Yeah. Um, and right. Sharing the responsibility and sharing the weight and picking up some of their weight too. Right. So uh, we are providing training and opportunities as well. You're emphasizing, I think we tend to think of academia as a very solo pursuit, like research as a very solo pursuit, but it's so not. It's so, so uh, not. It's not. So what I'll say is it, it can be isolating. A grad yeah. school certainly can be isolating, but don't because you won't succeed. Yeah. Um, so a successful researcher is not um, solo. It's slow. It's, mm -hmm. you don't have varying opinions and perspectives and methodologies. It's yeah not very beneficial is what i found i've tried i got mm -hmm. a kidney infection because of it right but that's oh when you got to start asking for help right that's when you got to start asking for help and building your team and surrounding yourself with people who are like-minded but also creative and also bring a different perspective mm -hmm. um, and i think no matter the type of researcher you are that's a skill that's necessary um while we're on this i have one last question what is one skill, quality, or general factor, it does not have to be intrinsic, that has served you no matter where you went in life? Oh, well, we're going to go back to that word that I gave you in the Song Association Challenge. Truly, I think as long as we can return to love, as long as we can practice love, right? We think about it as a feeling, but it's a skill, man, and it takes a lot of work. You were thinking about your boyfriend when you sang your song earlier. I have one too. Hey, Mike, Mike, he listens. He's very supportive. I love him truly, madly, deeply. Um, but it is a practice. It is a process. It is a skill that, just like I said, you got to ask for help. I don't know what I'm doing in any regard, right? We're all trying to figure this out. Um, we're talking about love, right? <laughs> we're talking about love as a skill, yes. right? We're talking about love as a skill. And it's something that we practice when we give our clients space to be vulnerable. It's something that we practice when we open up about how we're responding in the moment. It's something that we practice when we advocate for ourselves, when we ask for help. It takes effort is what I'm finding. It takes effort is um, what I'm learning to persist at with 
right? Let's talk about my boyfriend, but my grad students, as a grad student with my mentor, um, that I'm saying love, but understanding of perception, understanding of impact versus intention, the uh, conversations that we're able to have, the growth, the team science that happens because of love, right? And uh, right, that one scientist, sure, they love, but the love that happens from understanding different perspectives um, hmm. for me is a skill that I value in myself. It's a skill that I hope to share and spread. It, I wish I had an acronym for love. We'd be the love lab, but empower just worked out for us. Um, but and, love and can I just say it? It does ooze. It oozes out of you. Oh, don't make me cry because you know I'm a crybaby. Yeah, <laughs> so am I though. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's so important and it is a skill that um, hmm. it takes practice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much. I have a million more questions for you. Uh, but if you, you guys go listen to Aisha's podcast, it's oh. called the Black and Empowered Podcast. If you want to learn more about her work, if you want to just get more insight about grad school uh, and academia and, 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 and more, give me words. Uh <laughs> Impact, academia, research, community-based participatory methods. Yes. Higher yes. ed. Mental health. Light. Right. If you need a hug, I'm here. Overcoming trauma, fighting racism. If you want to eradicate racism, holla at me. Right. Um, <laughs> literally. Um, Where can people find you? People can find me at the Empower Lab everywhere. Um, I say Twitter, everywhere. Twitter, like Twitter, IG, kind of Facebook, working on TikTok, thinking about YouTube, just like <laughs> you. But I would say Instagram and Twitter are the ones that are um, most Amazing. active right now. The Empower Lab. You could um, go to my website, dr.aishametzger.com. We have a ton of resources on there. Um, I have a personal page. I don't think it's very interesting. I mostly <laughs> talk to my grandchildren and I don't have regular children. So it's very strange. <laughs> I just talk about you know, my interests and my family. I love uh, it. But go to the Empower Lab. Yes, go. Here. There's um, so much we couldn't cover so that if you guys want to read more oh, about yeah. the research that is coming out of it and yeah. like you guys have so many ongoing research projects going on right now. Um, and also, if you want to help and contribute, if you're good at translational research, if you're in communications, reach out to the Empower Lab at gmail.com. And I'm sure we have a research experience. We have a social media team. We have this public health messaging campaign. If you want to help, holla at us. So good. Thank you so much for everything, Aisha. I really, 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 really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. You're We're putting awesome. up hearts. We're putting up hearts. <laughs> yes. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. I hope you stay with us as we bring you more great gems this season. Have a great day.